You're listening to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 54. Robert Wolcott is a professor of innovation at Kellogg School of Management, co-founder of the Kellogg Innovation Network, and his articles can be found in multiple publications, including Forbes. Robert shared his insights on how corporations can start the ongoing process of innovation, including the important step of scouting in the periphery of startups instead of just the core parts of major competitors. We have an opportunity for you to scout the periphery of startups at our Inside Outside Innovation Summit, June 19th through the 21st. We can help set up purposeful meetings between corporations and startups with organizations that make sense for them so that things can happen and happen fast. Applications for the $100,000 pitch contest are still open and corporations can still become sponsors to experience the full offering of this premier Midwestern conference. I guess to start off, what are some of the things that you're seeing? What are you most excited about with regard to technology and trends that you're seeing? Great. It's an essential topic, and I, and I also love your name, Inside Outside Innovation, that so many, especially incumbents, need to figure out that innovation happens all over the place. Certainly, there's a lot more of it going on outside their company than there is inside, no matter how good they are. So figuring out how to do both is essential. So. In terms of trends, I'll start out with a meta trend that I'm looking at across industries. And the reason I'm excited about it is it transcends all industries. It is relevant for every industry. It manifests differently in each industry, but every industry will be affected. And that is the fact that all these technologies we're talking about, like Internet of Things or blockchain, distributed energy generation, 3D printing, Uh, make your list. All of these technologies drive the following capabilities, and that is the ability to distribute sensing, assessing, acting on, or agency to make decisions, and then production at smaller and smaller places all around the economy, more and more locations, more granular locations. So what does this mean? In the aggregate, all of these technologies drive the production and provision of products and services ever closer to the moment at which they are demanded. Now, let me say this again, because it's not just about having a better supply chain or being better at inventory management. That's a small part of it. It really is about taking everything that we pay for, value today from a business perspective, and being able to push it ever closer in the production and provision to the moment where that value is required. So I could give hundreds of examples, I'll just give two. One would be 3D printing, of course, of replacement parts. So an automotive dealer, about 25% of the plastic replacement parts for cars actually cost more to ship than they do to manufacture. So, I mean, Brian, that really seems like an opportunity to cut out some cost and distribute some 3D printing for very simple parts at first. But over time, it'll get better and better. And a second example, Uh, would be distributed energy generation. So as the economics of renewables change and become a little bit better, certainly there are still subsidies involved, et cetera. But look, over the next 10 years, 20 years, those economics will change. So we see a future where some of our energy, increasing amounts of our energy, will be produced closer and closer to the, the location where it's demanded. 
And this has enormous implications for an electricity infrastructure set up with large nuclear power plants, oil-fired plants, et cetera, than transmission and distribution. And the real clincher here will be uh, when energy storage be, really has, uh, has a leap forward. So, so these are just two examples of this dynamic occurring. So that's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're seeing this pace of disruption changing. You know, you look at the Fortune 500 over the last 15 years, and you know, half of them are gone because they've either merged or gone away or, or whatever. What can corporations start to do, or, or are they doing effectively to adapt to this ever-increasing pace of disruption? There are obviously many things, but but a few that that I I tell clients and and students often. One is we have to have better edge sensing capabilities, so searching our peripheries. Mm -hmm. The big threats and opportunities are not going to come from the core of your industry. Now, there will be big changes and threats that occur because you have great competitors. You're a great competitor, but you already know everything they're doing for the most part, and they know everything you're doing. So keep doing that, keep paying attention to the competition. But if we pay too much attention to our direct incumbent competitors, eventually we'll be in trouble. So we have to figure out where are the peripheries and technologies, geographies, other industries that are analogous. Maybe new players like a Google or Amazon who is deciding to perhaps get into your space and they've never been in that before. You need to have a runway to prepare for this. You need to have edge sensing, peripheral sensing, peripheral vision to find the things that might be relevant. And you can't pay attention to everything, so you have to be strategic about how you use your peripheral vision. And then take those insights, drive them to the right places within your company to make decisions mm -hmm. to build what I call a portfolio of options. So you can't just, every time there's something new, throw $100 million at it. Right. That, you'd go out of business, right? But how do you keep an eye on things, know they're happening, and then at the point when they start to get serious enough, build a portfolio of options to be ready, and then you're in the game. You're not doubling down yet. You're just in the game. You know what's going on. You're prepared. And then if some of those things start to really take off, you're ready. And, and you can be fast second, or you can acquire somebody. But Brian, there are two key words in fast second, fast and second. And it's not slow fifth. And oftentimes the incumbents become a, a sad slow fifth. So question on that with regard to how much of that peripheral vision is done kind of internally with your, your core team versus do you have a skunk, skunk works? Do you have, uh, are you betting on startups outside your ecosystem and, and placing more like a you know, corporate venture model? Um, what are some ways that are, are effective at doing that? So as you mentioned, there are a lot of different ways to do this, and it varies by company. But especially as you get to be a larger company, you should be able to have the resources and the commitment to try many or all of these things. And try a variety of them. See what works for you. Iterate. Uh, learn. Maybe something looks great, and you set up a fund, and, man, it's not going very well. Well, rather than killing it, find out why it's disconnected with your corporate objectives uh, or strategy. Find out why it doesn't seem to be feeding you the right, the right insights, the right intelligence from the marketplace. And so any large established enterprise really needs to be experimenting with all of these approaches. In particular, Brian, the internal biases, the orthodoxies of the company will always get in the way. And so it is, a, it is an ongoing effort to continue to expose executives to what's going on outside. A great PowerPoint presentation with some data, even if they're great data, is not enough. Yeah. People have to, if it's truly different, they have to see it, they have to experience it, and then they can start to think about how they might play or defend against the change. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that we see in the marketplace is a lot of times there a lot of corporations are trying a lot of things, yeah. but it's it's almost like innovation theater. It's like, yeah. well, let's run a hackathon and see what happens. What are your thoughts of like how do corporations kind of go off the rails? Great. Well, there are a lot of rails to go off here, so I'll give you two examples. On a high level, if you make a commitment to innovation, that's great. Congratulations. But that's not enough. You have to make a real commitment where you're not only going to try stuff, you're also going to follow through. You're going to be have some transparency to your, to your team and the company. Why are we doing this? If we find something that has certain criteria, we're actually going to move forward with it, or we might kill some things and be transparent as to why we're killing things. A couple of things we see happen fairly often that lead uh, bad directions. One is the insight of setting up a separate innovation group mm -hmm. protected with its own capital against the corporate antibodies that try and kill the new thing. You know, we've all seen this. That's the right insight, to insulate those new things. The problem is when insulation becomes isolation. Mm -hmm. When insulation becomes isolation, then those new things, even if they start to get a couple of happy customers on board, nobody in the rest of your company cares. And they say, why are you doing that? It's cannibalizing my business. Stop talking to my customers. And so that's one thing I see that, that we have to be very careful about. And, and the second thing is oftentimes established companies decide, well, let's just go out and meet the startups. And right. we'll go to you know 1871 here yeah. in Chicago, which is... An absolutely fantastic tech ecosystem, one of the best in the world. And you know, I know your, your hometown has some of these ecosystems where there are startups and you're investing in them. So the big companies decide we're going to go visit the start and the nice startups. And then they do little pitches and a few execs come. My uh, friend and colleague at 1871, Howard Tallman, calls this the entrepreneurial petting zoo. <laughs> and so you get to go and tap them on the head and say, oh, look at these nice little kids coding stuff. And then nothing happens. Yeah. So that wastes the startup's time. That wastes the investor's time. That wastes the corporation's time. So you have to be smarter about it. You have to figure out what are you trying to accomplish? What is the strategic frame for the future of your business? What kinds of problems for customers are you trying to solve? And, and this all takes a lot of background work. But when you fit these things together, what problems for customers are we trying to solve? What's our strategic frame for what company we want to be in five or seven years? And then it becomes a lot clearer the kinds of mechanisms you can use to succeed. So when it comes to talent, how can corporations best position themselves to compete effectively? Great. So first of all, stop trying to get and win and keep the entrepreneurs in the world to be with you full time. It's never going to happen. Somebody who is a natural entrepreneur and they just die to do that is never going to be, and they're not going to be happy and you're not going to be happy. But you should have great mechanisms and they, they exist to engage with them, to partner with them, to have them on advisory teams, to maybe invest in some of their activities, to bring your people with them on projects, um, extending, extending your arm outside the company. And then uh, in terms of your internal team, and, and obviously you want to hire people who are creative and who uh, want to solve problems and all the things that you would expect. But really what you need to think about is rather than how do we get and keep a bunch of real sort of independent entrepreneurs, which isn't going to happen, how do we find people within our company and people to join our company who have entrepreneurial capabilities? And that doesn't mean they have to start their own business. That means I can be entrepreneurial inside a big company. I can be entrepreneurial heck, even sometimes at a university, which is <laughs> immensely difficult. But there are some people who do it. So how do I get and keep those people for a while and give them the environment where not only the new people, but also my existing people mm 
I've found, and, and you probably have too, that you go into a company that's just starting to figure out this innovation game. And if you get serious about it, you get into the journey, you realize that there are people in this company who've been dying for this, and many times they didn't even know it. And then they have the opportunity to try things. They have the opportunity to, to identify, define, solve problems in new ways. And not everybody, uh, but some people percolate up and say, I want to do more of that. Yeah. So as a leader, you want to figure out who are the people who are fantastic at execution and really love it. They want to do basically the same thing, optimizing incrementally every week of the year, and they're jazzed about that. And who are the people that, well, they like the business, but they really want to figure out new directions. They want to find new ways to serve customers. They thrive in a small amount of uncertainty, because yeah. there are some people who actually prefer to have some level of uncertainty and others who don't. So as a leader, figuring out who you have in both of those camps is important and how you get them to work together. One is not better than the other. Mm -hmm. To have a sustainable enterprise, we must have both. One of the co-founders of the, of the KIN, my group at, at Northwestern that I founded about 13 years ago, one of our co-founders is the CTO of a family-owned and controlled uh, consumer durables company, great company, a couple billion dollars a year. And he said, if we have a project that we believe is strategically important, a truly important project, we've, we've said this is important for the future of our company, I know I have not staffed it properly until it hurts. And, and I said, Mark, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I know if that project truly is important, I haven't staffed it properly until I get a call from somebody saying, you can't take Julie off this project. She's our best engineer, and Walmart's calling. And when Walmart's call, calling, we drop it, right? And he says, when I get that phone call, I know I've got the right people on this project. So last question, any kind of uh, words of advice for our audience as far as resources they should follow, things they should be tracking uh, to keep up to date with this, this change of uh, this road? I guess my generic advice would be figure out what realms, what peripheries you're interested in. Identify one or two people or small, I'd say small organizations that are generating, that getting into the sinews of the economy and finding the exciting stuff and follow them. And, and if anyone's interested, I, I have a regular column with Forbes, and what I'm doing with that is not so much about what's current and new right now, less about that, more about where might things be going over the next 10 or 20 or in some cases even longer years. So if you're interested in a much further out picture and discussion, and I'm, I'm very interested in engaging with you on that, uh, you can find me at, at, often at Forbes. And that was my last question, like how can folks best engage with you? One, Forbes, two, LinkedIn, uh, three, send me an email. The dirty secret about Kellogg faculty is that our emails are available online to anyone who wanders by. That sounds great. Hey, I really appreciate the conversation today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Brian. That's the end of another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Thanks for listening. You can find Robert's contact info in the show notes. Take a minute and tell us your thoughts on iTunes or on Twitter at the IO Podcast or in person at the Summit. You don't want to be a slow fifth, so register today. Until next time, go out and innovate.